Hi, this is Cole. So last week I was in Miami at the Tapestry Conference, which is a conference that focuses on data storytelling. So right up my alley. And it was an inspiring couple of days. The finale was Elijah Meeks, who gave the closing keynote titled Third Wave of Data Visualization. I had the pleasure of sitting down with him right after that for a little chat. Elijah is Senior Data Visualization Engineer at Netflix, uh, author of the book D3JS in Action, and creator of the React-based data visualization framework, Semiotic. Elijah is also an active voice about data visualization on Twitter and Medium, and conducts and publishes an annual, highly discussed survey of data visualization professionals. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Elijah Meeks. Welcome to Storytelling with Data, the podcast where listeners around the world learn to be better storytellers and presenters with best-selling author, speaker, and workshop guru, Cole nisbomer Nafli. We'll cover a wide range of topics that will help you effectively show and tell your data stories. So get ready to separate yourself from the mess of 3D exploding pie charts and deliver knockout presentations. And with that, here's Cole. Hi, this is Cole, and I am here today with Elijah Meeks, uh, who just got done doing the final keynote presentation at the Tapestry Conference. We're actually sitting here in Miami, Florida, uh, talking to you today. We'll talk about that more. Um, but I actually want to start off with something that I read that you wrote relatively recently, uh, which is that data visualization is not a technical problem. It's a design problem. And more than that, it's a communication problem. Can you just expand on that a little bit? Tell us what you're thinking there. Absolutely. So, I mean, quite literally, data visualization is information design. You're taking information and you're trying to place it into a form and uh, setting that is going to be the most accessible to a particular audience uh, for a particular purpose. The problem with saying something like that is that uh, I... For somebody who's in this field and am interested in this and say information design very quickly, I have a hard time really understanding what information design is beyond sort of that pad explanation. And so when I make statements like that, um, from a certain perspective, it's just a truism to remind people that even though most data visualization requires technical mechanisms to create, one of the points of my talk today was to say that even though uh, people are making data visualization by hand in the same way that they would have 100 years ago. For the most part, people are making data visualization in a software-assisted way using tools or libraries. And so what I try to remind people is that even though there are technical constraints, that there's a technical framing, and that oftentimes there's an evaluation that celebrates the technical majesty of data visualization, that at the end of the day, data visualization is about communicating some kind of pattern or system to another human being in the most effective way possible, which places it firmly in the realm of rhetoric and not in the realm of engineering. And I think the reason why we think it is about engineering is that for the last 10 or 15 years or so, we've seen a lot of intellectual energy into producing these systems and specifications to allow us to readily create uh, 
cool data visualization. And we've seen just such a growth and such an explosion and such a such effective um, tools and libraries that it almost seems like that's all there is to it, is building those tools and libraries. That that's, or we forget that there's this other equally, if not more important piece, That's I right. Think. Oh, and also it's easy to evaluate, right? Because you can say, well, how many chart types does your library display? And it's a number. And it's like, oh, I win over yours. Or how, how big is this library? Oh, my library is smaller than yours. It's, it's faster. Or you can do performance metrics. Yeah. And that way they can get away from the messy. Well, and it's interesting, right? Because there's not such a clean way to measure sort of the, the efficacy of communication, right? That's right. That's right. And uh, much to the shame of us, because that's actually what this is about. You know, you're not making effective, if you're not effectively communicating, then you're doing bad data visualization. Even if it's super performant, it's got amazing geometric complexity, and it is otherwise a technological masterpiece. It's, if it doesn't communicate, then it's a failure. That's a good point. Okay, to let's take a step back, and for folks who are listening who may not be familiar with you and your work, can you tell us how did you get into this space? What sort of projects have you worked on over the years? Uh, a little bit about your background. In grad school, I got into GIS, which is Geographic Information Systems, uh, geospatial information visualization. If you want to look at it that way, it's using maps for analysis and again communication. From there, I got more into network analysis and network data visualization. While I was at Stanford doing uh, data visualization for researchers in the digital humanities, and we built some big public-facing research projects. We called them interactive scholarly works. Two of the most prominent are Orbis, the Stanford Geospatial Transportation Network of the Roman Empire. Okay. Uh, which allows you to do sort of Google Maps to the Roman Empire and actually much more sophisticated, cool stuff that nobody ever used in like sort of one of those first UX failures that it, you can find the time or the cost in Denari to go from one place to another at different times a year with different constraints. It's really cool, and people did that. And then on top of that, you could do all these other things with it, like split the Roman Empire based on certain centers of influence based on transportation network principles. And nobody ever did that stuff because... That was behind this functionality and this tab and hidden away over here and hard to explain. The other one was Kindred Britain, which is cool. It's uh, 3,000 British cultural elites and the 30,000 people they're related to such that they're all connected to each other. Hmm. So that you can connect Beatrix Potter to Longfellow or however you want. And it shows them in network diagrams, but it also shows them in timelines and it also shows them as... Um, geographically when we know events in their life that are geographic and it has interestingly in it it has this storytelling mode where you click through these different stories and some of the terms are highlighted and you click on them and they change the data visualization or you go to the next chapter in the story and it changes the data visualization view and i thought all of that was so cutting edge and cool and awesome and, and when people, was this this was six years ago okay and I thought it was cool and awesome, and it was going to inspire people to do exactly the same thing. And I just never saw anything sort of come of it. And Why this was, is that, do you think? I think it's the same reason we don't see a proliferation of good data visualization, in that it's not rewarded. You don't have to do things like that in the academy or in 
So is it laziness or just a lack of, a lack of something, I suppose? It's a good question. And we don't have to dwell there. We may not have no, answers. I mean, yeah, no, I, I, don't, I don't have answers. And, 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 and something I haven't thought about in a long time. Um, Sorry, I totally threw you off track. So you're at Stanford. Where do you go from there? So I was at Stanford for five years. I left just before they gave me like some little like five-year anniversary token. token. Yeah. And I went to work at Netflix. And on my way out of Stanford, somebody there said, have you ever worked in industry? Well, good luck. And it was a really sort of catty remark. And I thought that, that was funny. And so I went to work at Netflix and I thought, this is great. As I mentioned in my keynote, now there are bosses and bosses will order their employees to use my data visualization. And that turned out not to be the case. I still had to sort of sell yes. the data visualization, even as an internal employee. Maybe more so in some cases, I imagine. It's, it's the, no, I think that's absolutely, I think that's, that's incredibly apt. Because yes, if you're an external consultant, then you've already gone through some kind of process to establish that you're an expert. Yes. And people feel like there's sort of a sunk cost and that they have to, they have to treat with you in such a way to take advantage of that sunk cost. Yeah. Whereas if you're an internal employee and you're not directly part of someone's team and you present this sort of opportunity for them to develop some kind of a pertinent application, then it seems cool, but it also seems like a lot of hassle. And if this person turns out to not be so smart, then this is just going to be annoying to me and I've got other things to do with my time. Sure. Yeah. So I, I totally agree with that. So I went to Netflix. Um, the first thing I did at Netflix was make this really amazing Sankey-based diagram of flow through Netflix. And it was this uh, internal application and nobody used it. And I realized that it wasn't enough to do something that was geometrically complex, mm -hmm. that was analytically complex, that was true and the best representation. It also had to have better explanation. It had to have better annotation. It had to have better uh, labeling, all the things that you emphasize in your own work. And on top of that, it should, if it is the primary view, it should be supplemented by more accessible views such that someone doesn't feel so intimidated that they decide not to invest any time at all into reading it. Yeah. And despite Netflix's reputation, even though my first big project was a great big failure, they did not fire me. I went on to do other things. Well, and sorry, on on the Sankey diagram, did yeah. you did you go back and re reimagine any of it or just said, no, that one didn't work? Eventually. What's interesting, no. I mean, at first we just dropped it. Okay. And this whole expensive ETL, which is what they refer to as the data transformation process that was really custom and really sophisticated because, you know, you had to slice and dice the data in a very different way than they were accustomed to, yeah. to maintain the path structure. Yeah. And can I ask, how long did you spend developing it? I want to say six months, something like that. Uh, it's not an easy thing, right, to spend all that time and then... And then just drop it. Yeah. And all, I mean, and you know, it's an easy thing for me. I don't pay my own salary, but it's... But, but you get attached, I imagine, right? You can't not get attached to work that you've been doing for six months and then... Uh, no, I'm lacking that gene. I don't really, I don't really feel an attachment to the things that I make. It's very easy for me to walk away from them. I do, I'm like, I'm unhappy with the lack of impact. Yep. And for me, um, so I made a lot of things at Stanford, going back to Stanford, that I didn't assume that anyone would ever really see that were interesting to me. Yep. And that when I was done with them, I was done with them. And as a result, I never got sort of caught up in 
becoming the network visualization guy yeah. or the geospatial visualization guy. Well, or it's interesting, or one sort of takeaway from that, or, or um, I'm missing the word, but is you're not looking externally for appreciation then of your work. It's, it's there's something fulfilling about it in yeah. and of itself. Yeah, and it wasn't until I thought of impact at Netflix that I had a new metric to evaluate myself on. Yep. Before then, it yeah, was yeah. the sophistication. It was like, how cool can I get? Okay, um, I'm going to do this cartogrammatic transformation of this Roman transportation network. Well, how are you going to do that? Oh, I'm going to do it like this. Oh, it's too slow. It doesn't work right. All right, now I'm going to make it fast. And, um, and why was I doing it? Not because somebody had requested that, but because when I did it, I thought it was too slow, and I, and, and I thought this could be faster and whatever. And a lot of it was about just sophistication of geometric forms and, and binding data to visual channels and being really sophisticated about that and taking advantage from a technical perspective. And that's how I was evaluating myself. And uh, I appreciate the opinions of others. I don't want to be uh, like, you know. But yeah, it's, it's, I have firm beliefs about when something is effective or not. And the challenges I run into is when, like I was saying, when my basis of measurement is flawed, not the actual measurement itself. Yeah. Evaluating that Sankey diagram from, from all of the measures that I was using at the time, oh, it's great. It was super performant. Yep. It gave an enormous amount of flexibility for um, highlighting and filtering and going into it and interacting with it. It explained everything in a very clear and concise way. It was great. The only place where it failed, utterly, was in having any impact. Yeah. And so once I thought about impact, that became another and a very prominent measure. And, you know, then that allowed me to reorient myself. Yeah. And how did that change, do you think, how you prioritize how you do your work? Or, or did it change? How oh, no, prioritize? absolutely. I mean, I, became, I came to appreciate more common chart types mm -hmm. because they were more familiar I came to appreciate the need for collaborative design, mm -hmm. and really understanding stakeholders and really understanding what they wanted and not just assuming that what they wanted was perfect accuracy into this complex system, but rather actionable insight into aspects of the system that were better than what they had. Mm -hmm. And I think the problem there is that if you only have that, then you can just sort of, you know, you just become somebody who's checking off features that your stakeholders are asking for. You have no growth, and for me, I'd have no personal fulfillment. I'd mm -hmm. be bored, and I wouldn't enjoy it. Like, I'm, I have to be interested in what I'm doing. That's an important aspect of it. Now, so I, bar charts and pie charts are really easy to make, so I wasn't going to be interested in making them. And so what did I do? I decided to build a charting framework with novel thoughts on how to, subdivide the charting world semantically and that's semiotic you're yeah semiotic about. this charting library and that's where i even though i was making bar charts under the hood these bar charts lived in this very sophisticated very novel and cool system and so i was still you know even as i was making bar charts and line charts and to be clear i was making more than bar charts and line charts but even when i was making those i was still having this interesting experience and also i was having this interesting experience becoming better at the fundamentals of being a UI engineer, right? UI and UX and controls and all that stuff.
It's interesting, this idea of the, I'm always very interested in constraints and how constraints, we talk about them often as this negative thing, but how constraints can actually lead us to think about things in new ways and come up with really con creative Some solutions. Some of the best art is produced in periods of censorship. Yeah. Well, I think about it in what you had said, though, because you're thinking like, okay, bar charts, line charts, like those are my constraints. How do I still make this something that's interesting? Right, and, and so the bar chart and the line chart became the sort of gateway drug <laughs> into diagrams that also existed in that space. So like yeah. a scatter plot exists in exactly the same place as a hex bin or a grid or any kind of aggregation kind of thing, contour. So your aggregation. library is growing then, right. right, as these connections happen. That's right. And and as a result, you know, it proved to be a good bet because then, you know, I had a library where somebody could come to me and they expected a bar chart and I gave them a bar chart. So that way they believed me. And uh, the bar chart that I gave them, it just so happened, could very easily turn into a violin plot with a bee swarm overlay. Mm -hmm to get a sense of the distribution of yeah. the data. And because of that, I could then say to them, here's your bar chart. Also, here's another way to look at it. That's very thematically similar. You know, take it if you want. Yeah. And they would. And um, you should see the applications we're building now. They are so, like there's still bar charts and line charts, but there is so much interesting, abstract data visualization that goes on along with them that our stakeholders are happy with. Well, and I think that's an important point though, right? Is that, because the first iteration of the Sankey didn't work from that standpoint, but as you, so going back to basics, but then building on that and bringing your audience or your stakeholders along with you then affords you the flexibility to be able to do more as time goes on. I, th I think that's one frustration that people sometimes in data visualization think like, oh, but I, I want to do this one graph type that's great for whatever reason, but it doesn't work with the audience. And this idea of going back to the basics to build credibility or to orient people in order to build upon that is, is a really interesting idea. Well, we have to acknowledge that our field emphasizes short-term thinking and short-term goals. It emphasizes producing the one chart for the busy executive to make the right decision. Tufti's example of the challenger is all about you've got 15 minutes to save people's lives, right? And while that is an important use case in data visualization, there are long-term plans. Um, and whether you're a consultant and a freelancer or whether you're internal, you want to build relationships, long-term relationships, so that you can have people who trust you and you can push them to do more sophisticated things because you're going to enable them to do more sophisticated things with these more sophisticated views. And we don't emphasize that in our fundamental principles of how to go about doing data visualization. And as a result, we don't, I think that's a real blind spot for people in their day-to-day -day practice. Yeah, it's interesting. And actually, this was one of the points that you uh, ended or, or close to ended with uh, in the tapestry presentation, this idea that optimizing for a single chart, something that historically has been uh, a lot, has had a lot of emphasis put on it, that this is actually something we should move away from. Uh, so maybe that's a good segue to talk about your tapestry talk. So I'll make sure that we link to the full recording in the show notes so that people can refer to that and watch it. Uh, it was fantastic.
but I'd love to uh, love to have you give us an overview of you know, what led to you thinking about doing this as a topic and, and you know the, the short version of what did you cover today? So my tapestry talk offered up this idea that we're on the cusp of a third wave in data visualization. So what I tried to do was I tried to step away from the long history of data visualization that goes all the way back to, I don't know, a, there's a spreadsheet in ancient Egypt that was carved into a wall, right? Or the Pudinger table in the Roman Empire. Was there really a spreadsheet carved yeah, yeah. into a wall? <laughs> um, they pay, yeah. You know, or for the audience who probably isn't familiar with that spreadsheet or the Pudinger table or things like that, they probably are familiar with Playfair and Menard and Bertan and Britain, Brenton and all of these people, Nightingale and Du Bois and all that. And while I think that those are valuable, um, I think it's better to think about sort of modern data visualization, which is very much computer-assisted, tool-based and, and library and, and, and coding-based. And I think that the first wave of that is really exemplified by the principles of Tufti in the visual display of quantitative information. And what I tried to point out in the talk was this was published in 1983, which was a long time ago in a period where you did not have access to the sophisticated tools and techniques, but also the more sophisticated audiences and expectations that we have today. And so I talked about that as sort of the first wave. I uh, anchored the second wave onto Leland Wilkinson's work, The Grammar of Graphics, because what I saw as the next phase was this emphasis on systems and specifications mm -hmm. for building the kind of tooling necessary to let practitioners create any combination of encodings to create these charts that we no longer have names for and we just sort of like they show up in xenographics and it's because we've moved away from charts it's actually as much as i love stephanie evergreen's and john schwabesh's cards and they're, they're these chart posters we don't live in an era of charts anymore we live in an era of encodings that ties directly to these specifications and those encodings are all about taking a certain data attribute like somebody's age and tying it to a certain graphical channel like the length of a line. And when you combine those encodings, you come up with something that is a circle pack. But when you combine them in a slightly different way, it's a tree map. And when you combine them in a third way, it's my tree map over time that's in the Xenographics library, right? It's not really a different chart because it was never a chart in the first place. It's a recipe. It would be like saying that there's all, that like you had a poster and it said, these are all the different kinds of meals when really yeah. these are recipes. Okay. And so the specification period, the systems period, was all about sort of developing an understanding of what were the atomic units that could go into charts okay. to produce what we used to call a pie chart, and which is now just one emanation of a radially oriented bar chart where the width is encoding the value and the height is fixed. And it sounds absurd, and we're not going to call it that because that's a mouthful. <laughs> but that's literally what it is under the hood in semiotic. Yeah. And so we got caught up in these systems, and these systems are super powerful, and they're super valuable, and they're super important, and they created these amazing things that we have. Tableau and Gigiplot right, and D3. But yeah. you, then you get these massive libraries, right? These with thousands of different uh, things that you can do. How do you then teach effective data visualization in that space, right? Coming back to this idea of, well, if it's a bar chart and a line chart that you're going to use for the effective communication. I mean, so so that I think is the tension of the age. We can do anything, but, but as, we shouldn't do a lot of it. <laughs> as Jeff Goldblum said, we were so I don't know what did he say? We we wanted to know if we could and we didn't think if we should. 
so I'm a firm believer, and you know this from my brain, I'm a firm believer in the value and power of what we think of as complex data visualization, and even like really weird data visualization. And I think that it's powerful because I think that it reveals different structures of data. So like a network chart isn't just cool and, and pulls people in. It shows a different kind of data than a bar chart ever could. Yep. So with that on the table, I totally agree with you. It is intimidating and it is, you know, death by unlimited options. Yep. And we're simultaneously dealing with audiences who only recently learned how to read a scatter plot, right? Um, I don't have good answers, but I can tell you that the current approach in academia that focuses on the individual graphical channels doesn't seem to be working. Like that comes back with nice, again, atomic rules for processing some quality in the absence of everything else. And it seems like when you add them together, it just reinforces this conservative view that in my experience, you know, doesn't, doesn't seem to be reflected in, in practice. That, that really, um, at Netflix, we do a lot of standard kind of charts. We do a lot of variations on those charts that are fundamentally the same thing, right? A bar chart with error bars on it is not some kind of xenographic. Sure. But by the same vein, we also, put, we, to answer your question from a while back, six or eight months ago, somebody came to me and said, boy, it'd be nice if we could see the flow of users through the system. Uh. And did you dig it back and out? We built we <laughs> built a different application. Um, it had Sankeys in it, but we finally got rid of them. It also used hierarchical charts like dendrograms and sunbursts. And we built it for one use case. And then somebody said, well, can't we use this? Isn't this thing over here a path? And we built it for that use case. And then somebody said, well, isn't this a path? And, they, and we built it out for that, and then we started to genericize it so that anybody could just drop their data into it. And what was and different this it. time? You should see the difference. If only, Cole, <laughs> I didn't have this NDA that prevented me. The original no, one was, the was a Sankey diagram yeah. with a few filters on the top. Okay. The current one is a pair of hierarchical charts that say the same thing in different forms. So they work in tandem but with each I other. But I imagine, so not the difference in the graphical form itself, but the difference in the environment or in your position within that environment that makes this possible in a way that even probably so I these imagine are, these diagrams wouldn't have been possible so, then. So these were new stakeholders. So yep. They weren't people that I had okay. an established relationship with. There was a, like a generally higher level of visualization literacy among them. But more than that, I was better at coming into a room and showing people things and not being so intoxicated by my own geometric majesty mm -hmm. that I didn't notice that the people in the room were kind of like, eh. And so, you know, when I built the first diagram, it was a meeting every two weeks with one stakeholder. And it was basically a check-in, say, hey, you're still working, right? This is good, and what do you think of this? And I would drive everything. I would show off all of these features because I knew them all because it was my baby. In these meetings, it was weekly meetings with lots of different stakeholders. And the things that I was showing to them was not a single, and the reason why I, was try I wasn't trying to get caught up in the graphical form, yeah. but I was trying to say that instead of there being this one ring to rule them all, uh -huh. instead there were a lot of different things. So there were many different views into this. Yep. 
And then they would say, this doesn't make any sense to me. And sometimes I would say, no, it will. Give it some time. But don't worry. We'll take the thing that you want. We'll put it on top. And this will be a context for that. Yeah. Uh, it's an interesting way of prioritizing right. their needs, right? I mean, we had the Sankey diagram. I reached out to someone I knew um, who was developing a circular Sankey diagram, so it showed cycles, and I was so mm. excited about it, and it just never worked. It never resonated with the audience. Part of it was because the data was more complex than any of the sort of sample data sets. And I'm, I do, see, this is the problem, is that people think that when I was giving this talk, that somehow I was part of this third wave of data visualization. I grew up deeply embedded in that period when people were inventing systems and proving their worth by doing all this geometric stuff. And that, I think, will always be what I'm optimized for. Oh, so interesting. So you're almost having a fight against yourself to... I, I mean, listen to, listen to how I'm discussing it with you. Yeah. I'm barely talking about the design part. I'm barely talking about the rich textual elements and annotations that are all over this thing now. Yeah. And I'm instead only talking to you about all of the cool, like different data visualizations, especially the ones that nobody got and never worked that we had to, that we ultimately. See, so there is attachment of. there, right? Well, no, no. I mean, what I'm talking about is, is no, there's not. So the attachment that I have to certain data visualization forms I mean, of course, I'm, a, I'm like I'm a human being, so I'm sure that I'm sure that I feel some level of whatever. Um, but the attachment that I have is a conviction that it's okay to push people. Like you don't always have to give people what they want. You can give them what you think is going to be better. Yeah. And so I'll hold on to things not because I made it. In fact, like I've gotten to the point where it's really easy to make all these things. So there's not even this level of uh, investment like it sure. was. But I'll push them because I feel like it needs to happen. And this being increasing other people's graphical literacy. Graf exactly. And how do you do that? Or how have you done that? I think the, I, I, you know, like the only thing that I can really say. So that during the talk, I said that you establish trust. Yeah. And when you establish trust, you have this sort of social currency that you can spend on like asking somebody, trust me, I'm going to put this here, you're eventually going to get it. And people will trust you. After you've established After that you've established trust. Uh, and you better be right, yeah. like more often than not. Because sometimes you're wrong, but, but you better be right more often than not. Otherwise, because, you know, that's the problem with milking a cow. It doesn't stay milked. Like, you can't just establish trust once, and then you have it forever. The only sort of practical thing I can, that comes to mind is uh, tandem views, wherein the contextual and tandem views are familiar. Mm -hmm. And so that your where you're pushing them is ensconced in things that make sense. Yeah. I wish you could have seen. So I, uh, the work that you do, one of the strongest things that I associate with it is these sentence-long titles, yeah. these explanatory titles. Do you know what we developed at Netflix? We developed this filter panel. So when you think of filter panels, you think of a bunch of drop-downs, right? Sure. We developed a filter panel that we call a sentence filter. Okay. So that... The, there's like highlighted words on it. Mm -hmm. And those highlighted words are whatever the filter settings are. So it says something like yeah, views cool. in the United States during this date for this kind of device. That's awesome. And so they're constantly like, so, so all of it's our reminding things, you what you're looking at. So you don't right, get and lost. It's not a bunch yeah. of, and it's not a bunch yeah. of drop downs. It's a yeah. sentence with punctuation. That's right. And that's there. And so is some, you know, call out some, some, some high level statistics 
and some bar charts and some, or I shouldn't even say bar charts. It makes it sound like I'm denigrating those, but things that are familiar. Yeah. And inside them is some, like alongside them is something else that presumably isn't so unfamiliar. Like, or they're able to relate it back to the thing that is familiar in a way that, yeah, gives them that sense of comfort right. to that's be able right. to understand what's going on. All right, so back on your talk. So you talked about you know the first wave of data visualization being uh, sort of tied to or driven in some ways by Tufti and his work and Clarity being the focus. Uh, the second wave uh, driven by Wilkinson and you know this idea of systems and you know let's let's figure out all the cool things that we can do and put them out there in ways that other people can. Uh, can use and emulate. Uh, the third wave, I think you described as convergence. Can you say more about that? So when I look at third wave data visualization, I think what the signals that I get that things are changing is that the modes that we're using in data visualization, and by that, roughly speaking, I'm saying sort of dashboards and notebooks and long form data-driven data journalism style stuff scrolly telling or storytelling or whatever. What I see is I see them converging. I see them coming together and becoming the same thing. I see a lot of elements that we associate with dashboards showing up in notebooks. I see a lot of elements that we associate with data-driven storytelling showing up in the custom applications that we call dashboards at Netflix and just so on and so forth. I see a lot of cross-pollinization. I see also a convergence in the tooling so that now people who are using R can make beautiful graphics and they have ex, you know, accessible to them geospatial information visualization stuff, sketchy rendering, uh, the ability to, to create interactive servers and things like that. And finally, and I think those, those are actually, you know, once you say it to somebody, I'm sure that they say, wow, that's, that's right. But I think more important than those two is I see the audience expectations converging. I think that 15 and 20 years ago, you could rightly say, that an analyst was creating a chart for a busy executive to make a decision. But I know in my experience that I'm making charts that are for busy executives. And the same chart is also for an analyst. And the same chart is for a data scientist. Should it be? Well, or is I it can't a scenario where it can't not be? I can't speak to should. I know it is. Okay. Um, I think that, again, I. I when you, when, when, and I'm, this, is, this is my fault. I present it as a wave one, wave two, wave three kind of thing. It makes it sound like the other things are, are gone now. Mm -hmm. But really, they still exist. There's still the presentation chart that the executive is going to use at the quarterly review, right? Sure. There's still the last minute analysis that we need to figure this out in 24 hours, whether or not we're going to I don't know, cancel this season or something, right? Cancel this show. So that still exists. Mm -hmm. And just like exploratory data analysis still exists. A data scientist who's in a notebook and they're just, and they're only making data visualization for themselves. Yep. What I know is that along with those modes are a new class of modes that to me seem more and more common. And if they continue this trajectory are going to be the dominant mode, which is that I'm making a chart and it's going to be seen in a number of different situations mm -hmm. by a number of different audiences for a number of different purposes. Which complicates things. Which complicates things. If that's where we are now, where where do we go from here? What You spent some time in your talk talking about what comes next. Well, I think that right now we're dealing with this. 
whether we know it or not, whether we want to or not, we're sort of dealing. I, I enjoy it. Uh, because of the challenge? Because it gives new opportunities to do cool new things. And I like new things. I'm a, you know, it's interesting to me. Yeah. And yeah, because of the challenge. Like, like you were saying, how do we make this so that it's valid and useful in spite of the fact that it's being transmitted all over the place? I think where we need to go is we need to go into an intentional engagement with this. So these modes are combining, and we just sort of deal with it reactively. The modes, the audience? The modes, the audiences, the tools. Okay. All of these things are converging. Yep. And we're just sort of responding to it. And I think what we need to do is I think we need to sit down and say, well, what does that mean? Like, what is it? If it's true, mm -hmm. I, I love the way that you asked that question. You know, should it be? I think we should ask that. Yeah. What is it? We, we saw a presentation here at Tapestry, where someone was talking about the different ways their charts were used. And one of these ways was, uh, I gave it to my manager, and they used it, they gave it to another manager who used it possibly in some meeting somewhere else. Yeah. And I have looked through memos at Netflix and stumbled upon screenshots of some application I have built for some person whose name I don't know for some kind of research into something that I'm not familiar with. Yeah. And I think that we need to ask ourselves the should it be. We need to engage with the uh, when it has to happen, what are the new restraints and affordances? Do we modify these models where we talk about zooming in and operational strategic views? And do we somehow personalize these applications, mm -hmm. right? Do I have an executive? I can build things, and I I know it's all personal. All the stuff we build is personalized, so I know if it's somebody from this part of the organization or that part of the organization who's looking at it. Maybe I should, and I, we don't do this, but maybe I should shift these things, so that if it's a data scientist looking at it, this chart shows up on top, and mm -hmm. then this chart. Mm -hmm. If it's this kind of person looking at it, maybe it shows up with more annotations. Um, I don't know because I'm reacting to all of this. I'm building. And, and how do we move? Do you think out of a reactive position there? Well, I think it's it's first with just a rigorous examination of when I smash X together with Y, what do I get? Mm -hmm. What is a notebook plus a dashboard? Like that's, I, it's easy for me to ask that question. That's a, that's a critical investigation that I think needs to happen. What does it mean if I create a chart that is meant for both high-level executives making immediate decisions and also analysts making deeper decisions? What does that mean if that is the use case what does that mean? And what is the role of the sort of annotations and framing and ephemera of an application around those charts if it's not just in this sort of old-fashioned one role, one mode, one use? Yep. So I think that like literally what I've got in my mind, I've been thinking about this, I, I, and I wanted to put it together for a slide, and it never looked good. But you could again make a matrix of notebook, dashboard, and just list all the different modes. And then go the other way and say, well, OK, these these different modes. What is this plus this? What would I call it? Yeah. What is it? Um, you talked about this idea of mashing up yeah, the different. The same thing with like, what does it mean now that people who are using tools like R 
have access to this amazing feature surface? Is it data scientists who are doing this? Are data scientists changing their practice now that they have access to the ability to create dashboard-like things? Or is it that we see more dashboard developing people picking up R? Are we, I, I, I don't know what the answers to any of these questions are. Who's doing this? Is somebody actually rendering charts with sketchy rendering in R? If so, why, where, how? Yeah. And, and why aren't they all over Twitter, right? Um, so all of this stuff is happening, and we sort of see it, and like I said, and we're reacting to it. And I think it's about time we go and look for it, and we start naming it. We do what, you know, we, we, we do what human beings do. We, we go find the patterns, and we name them, and then we struggle with whether or not we agree with somebody else's way of defining things. And I think that sounds very exciting because I am a complete nerd. <laughs> well, I think we'll actually close on that. <laughs> um, but before we do, uh, I like to ask for a tip. And it's, it's funny because often the tip I ask for is about, you know, how do, we, how do we teach kids at an earlier age to be able to think critically and do some of this stuff well? But you made a joke uh, in your session that like, you know, yeah, it's all well and good to teach fourth graders how to do this, but it's going to be a long time before those fourth graders become my stakeholders. So I want to switch this question around in light of that and ask how, and you, you touched on this a little bit earlier, but how do we how do we get our stakeholders to be better when it comes to accepting the way that we want to communicate to them with data? Well, I think stakeholders are starting to break the narrative and are getting better. I think that that's one of those comfortable narratives that I think is going that. And this is a bet. This isn't something that I'm sitting here. I've done exhaustive research, but sure. my based on my experience and based on what I've seen from other um, practitioners in other fields. Stakeholders are starting to get uppity and they're starting to have expectations and they're starting to get better reading things and just have a higher standard for the level of fit and finish what we produce. I think it's our responsibility to stoke that excitement, to try to identify healthy ways to, what do I mean by healthy ways? What I mean is that, so this is interesting. In, in, so when I was working in digital humanities, there was so much enthusiasm and there was so much celebration of all of these amazing new ways of dealing with things. Here's a network map of Middlemarch and here's a, you know, using topic modeling for poetry and here's a thing and this is amazing and people were so enthusiastic and I don't think that there was sort of a sober reflection on where things should be going. So um, how do we, what do we do with our stakeholders? How do we make them, how do we improve their visual literacy? I think that we have to be, I think that actually it's that we're going to have to be careful to take their enthusiasm and push it in the right direction. And tell them things like, like when somebody comes to you and says, I love data visualization, here I'll prove it to you. I hate pie charts too. We say, actually pie charts are fine. You know what I really like about data visualization is uh, when it's surrounded by a lot of words, because words are really useful, right? And so that's, I think, what we should do. Because, um, and like I said, this is, this is, my experience may not be typical, but in my experience, uh, I don't, I don't hear people who are 
as resistant as they used to be. Uh, I just hear people who in their enthusiasm might let you get away with things that prove to not be useful. And I could see that in the same way that I feel like it happened in digital humanities. I could see in two or three years, we have this great time where people let us suddenly become data sketches, but internally. And then they say, well, where was the impact of any of this? And then there's a, there, you know, things collapse. Yep. Yeah, it's interesting. Food for thought. Huh? Any final tips to, or uh, words, parting words to leave folks with today? I think that this tapestry conference was just great. Like it was invigorating. I think it was full of interesting people from across the different perspectives in data visualization. Uh, the things I heard in the t in the talks, it it was almost as if people had um, met up earlier and agreed to certain themes and certain directions to go. I mean, we heard trust mentioned again and again. We heard people engage seriously with how data visualization is like language and how language and, and really like not generically, but words and what kind of words and what kind of parts of speech and how can we actually think about improving data visualization by, by thinking about the, the linguistic qualities of it. And just in general, I thought I was going to come in here and make some dramatic boat rocking statement. And instead, because my, I was giving my talk at the end, I just felt like I was really emphasizing and connecting a few dots that people had already done. And to me, that was extremely exciting. Because though I feel confident in the trends that I was observing, I didn't necessarily know that my conclusions were valid. And when you see a bunch of things and you think and you get some grand narrative to it, and then nobody else sees it, yeah. well, then it's pretty likely that you're a genius and just <laughs> nobody appreciates you. Never change. Um, but instead, it just seemed like everybody, and not just the things that I was talking about, but the things that Mona was talking about, the things that Matt was talking about, the other keynotes, it just seemed like everybody who came after them emphasized these things or gave a personal example that was just a great example of, of this generic concept that somebody else had, had mentioned. And it was extremely exciting. Just a really valuable contribution, I think, to the whole field. That's great. And I'll make sure that we link to all of the videos. Where should people follow you, follow your work? Um, I'm on Twitter and I'm on Medium and, you know, I, I like I have code on uh, GitHub and such. So depending on what kind of person you are. Yeah, and I'll make sure that we link to all of that. If you're easily offended, follow me on Twitter. <laughs> if, if you want my, For entertainment, I my bibliography you on <laughs> free claims in long form, follow me on Medium. And if you want to see code written by someone who has never in their life taken a single computer science course, you can, you can favorite my repos on GitHub. Awesome. Elijah, thank you so much. It has been a pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity, Cole. This is always fun. 
Thanks very much for tuning in. Before we wrap, a couple of quick updates. The December 2018 Storytelling with Data Challenge is live and runs through December 10th. To celebrate the season, I challenge you to create a holiday-related data visualization. Email it to swdchallenge at storytellingwithdata.com by midnight Pacific time on December 10th, and we'll include it in our recap post later this month. All of the graphs and underlying data from Storytelling with Data, the book, have been made available and can be downloaded at storytellingwithdata.com slash book slash downloads. I welcome you to use these to learn or to teach. Speaking of teaching, my public workshop schedule for Q1 2019 has been set and includes one-day workshops in London, Charlotte, North Carolina, San Francisco, and my very first trip down under with sessions in Auckland, Melbourne, and Sydney. Details, dates, and registration can be found at storytellingwithdata.com slash public dash workshops. If you have a question for me, you can email it to askcole at storytellingwithdata.com. If you like what you hear, subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend. And with that, be sure to follow at storywithdata on Twitter and Instagram. Also check out all the great resources on the blog at storytellingwithdata.com. Thanks for listening.